the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You're lucky, Dean. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We have a different family story this hour. Uh, We're going to shift gears a little bit and tell a story that uh, happened to my guest Joshua Melville, the name of the book that he uh, tells this story in, is American Time Bomb, Attica, Sam Melville, and a Son's Search for Answers. And Josh joins me by phone. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, You know, I think everybody wants to know more about their, their family. In fact, last hour I was talking with somebody who had been inspired by stories his mother told him of of her ancestors you know not exactly coming over on the mayflower but the same kind of story and and he ended up 
writing some historical novels um, as a result of, of digging into those stories a little bit. This is something different. You just accidentally found out something really surprising about your dad. Uh not sure what you mean by accidentally i i because uh, i was working on this story for like 30 years <laughs> well i i don't how did you how did you first find out or did you always know that sam melville had been uh, a bomber during the uh summer of 1969 um well my mother told me uh when i was uh, nine years old um, I had been corresponding with him through letters. I didn't know the letters were coming from prison. I just thought he was uh, working on a farm to help Native Americans. And then two years after his death, uh, after the Attica, uh, after the tragedy at Attica, um, the psychologist, the school that I was uh, attending at the time, said, you know, you really have to tell him. It's, it's clearly affecting his grades and his ability to socialize. He doesn't know what's happened to his father, and you have to, you have to tell him the truth. And so it was, uh, my mother sat me down when I was nine years old, and um, she told me a version of the truth, her version of it, uh, which was, you know, partially true. He was a, a radical, he did bomb buildings, and he was arrested, and that he was in prison, and that he died during the, uh, during the retaking of the prison at the hands of state troopers. Uh, so all that she told me, and all that was true, and she presented me with a, um, a folder of uh, newspaper articles that she had collected and curated over the years, um, knowing that this day would most likely come. And all of those newspapers, all those articles, supported her version of the truth that was a very skeletal version of the truth, but it lacked any nuance. And in some parts of it, um, what she told me was not true. And um, it was the parts that were not true and the things that she left out that it took me, you know, many, many years, several decades to, to uncover and fill in um, by, uh, by, by uh, subpoenaing the government for FBI files on my father, which I was theoretically entitled to under the Freedom of Information Act, but in reality you have to sue to get them. Um, and, uh, and also tracking down um, uh, his, uh, his comrades uh, who were part of his radical cell and people who he knew in prison. And... Um, uh, and uh, it took many years, and finally I uncovered the truth, which was not that he was passively involved in all of these things, as my mother had represented. He wasn't just involved with radicals, he was a leader of them, and he wasn't just, you know, at, at Attica when a riot happened to break out, he was one of the people who engineered this riot. And um, so that took many years, uh, and uh, a great deal of time and money, and a great deal of emotional investment as well. When you were nine and you first heard this story, um, and and your mother's version, which which all turned out to be true, just it was sort of uh, uh, the truth light. Um, but at what point did you know you wanted to know more? Um, well. I would say when I was in my mid twenties, um, I, I already I had learned who my father was. Um, over the course uh, from I'd say age eighteen to which is when I was at, uh, living on my own, I lived on my own by age nineteen, and um, started you know uh, 
going to school, getting a job, you know, become, becoming an adult. And I, I started to become confronted with um, fa- uh, facets of my father's past. Um, whenever I would encounter, I remember I lived in New York, in the lower, in the, uh, I lived in the Grinch Village and the Upper West Side of New York, which was um, a very, very uh, politically left uh, segment of the country. And so my father was a hero to those people. And so I, I was constantly meeting people who knew who my father was, who, who, who ionized him, and as a result, knew who I was. And they would tell me, oh, your father was a hero. You should be so proud to, to be his son, and he did such wonderful things. But all I kept thinking was, you know, uh, how am I supposed to feel about a man who wanted to save the world but abandoned his only child to do it? And so it was hard for me to, uh, to see him as a hero. And yet people were telling me he was that. And so that went on for quite some time. And I just kept rejecting it and rejecting it. And, um, and then when I started working on Wall Street, I ended up working in the building, one of the buildings that he bombed. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I, when I went uh, to, to college, I would pass the place where he was arrested every single day on my walk from the subway to the school. And then uh, one day when I was in class, you know, a, a guest lecturer, um, completely random, out of, out of nowhere, uh, was talking about her experience in the Weather Underground. And she mentioned my father as, as a great American hero who completely uh, was the blueprint for an entire revolution. And I was like, wait a second, this is not the story my mother told me, where he was just this passive guy who fell in with so-called crazed hippies who wanted to, you know get America out of Vietnam and bomb buildings because they were, you know, she almost made, a, made it sound like he was you know, part of like a Manson crew. And this, this was the untrue part of what she had told me. And, um, you know, the truth was that he was involved with a, a set of deep intellectuals who, had, who were very sane in what they were doing, very, very, uh, very organized in what they were doing. And with the, were, were only captured as a result of a massive FBI um, investigation from two different central offices, both Chicago and New York, and several different divisions in a 300-person manhunt. This was not a passive, you know, footnote in history. This was clearly something that was much more significant. And it turned out the reason she she downplayed all of this is because she was concerned that I had a lot of my father's temperament in me, and that she was concerned that I would, I too, would lionize him and then follow in his footsteps. He was a successful engineer before he took to bombing buildings and making those kinds of political statements. Um, That's what, right. What, in your research, Josh, did you find a turning point from him? Was there, or for him, was there some moment in history that changed his path forever it changed his path or yeah my path? no his path yes well he was his father my grandfather his father was a um, was an organizer in the communist labor party of america ah. and uh, so my father was raised in a in a um, in a uh, left-wing socialist environment he was interfacing with uh, some very prominent leftists of the time uh, uh irving horowitz and paul robeson and people like that were constant, you know, uh, uh, figures uh, in my father's adolescent upbringing from age 19 uh, 
post-adolescent upbringing from age 19 to his uh, till the time he met my mother around age 23 or 24. And um, then he, but he kind of rejected it too. Uh, he, 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 he was involved in it and it clearly had an influence on him later in life. But in that point in his life, he decided he wanted to try to be a conventional kind of person. He didn't want to follow in his father's footsteps. He, he saw his father as a hypocrite um, because his father remarried. And even though he was an officer in the Communist Labor Party at that time, um, he wanted the party to double his salary so he could afford to buy a house with a swimming pool in a fancy part of Long Island. And my father <laughs> saw that as, as hypocritical. And so they had a, they never, they didn't speak for until he, for quite a while. And then, and then later his, his father died. So they, they died. He and his father kind of, uh, parted, uh, uh, uncivilly and he never had a chance to reconcile that. In the meantime, he had met my mother, who was a very conventional uh, woman, a uh, very conservative and conventional woman, and decided to get a real job as an engineer. You know, they moved into a fancy apartment in the Upper West Side, had a child, me, and was living a conventional life. But this point in time was, was the early 60s, and this was the time that the counterculture was, was rising. And my father saw what was happening um, with uh, with the counterculture and the rise of of a of a new left, as it was called, um, and he 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 gravitated towards it because he said this was different from his his father's leftist movement, which was a bunch of which which were he saw as a bunch of curmudgeonly old men, you know, with long beards, intellectualizing about revolution. He saw the uh, counterculture of the early and mid '60s as actual revolution, and so he gravitated towards that. He ended up uh, leaving my mother, quitting his job, joining the counterculture, and uh, and eventually became you know uh, prominent within that community and and did change its its path. It changed it changed he he single handedly changed its path from one of passive activism into more violent revolution. And so he was the first in the in modern American times to uh, to uh, use um, timed explosive devices to target banks, military installations, and large skyscrapers as a form of protest. I think it would be important to mention at this point that no one was ever killed. That was my next injured. question, Josh, as yeah, I was going to ask he, about death and injury related to those bombings. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for asking that. Um, so uh, one of the reasons it took me so long to tell this story is that um, um, uh, bombers like Timothy McVeigh um, who bombed the Oklahoma? Who uh, bombed uh, the Oklahoma bomber? His bomb killed. I forget how many people. Many people um, forever changed the way we think of political bombing as a as a form of protest. Uh, at that, from that point forward, all bombers became terrorists, regardless of their motivations. Yeah, I want and to so, talk a little bit about that, Josh. But I have a break coming up here. Can you stick around sure. for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Oh, sure. This is Absolutely. a fascinating story, Josh, and and I want to get to where your path uh, uh, veered oh, off sure. <laughs> um, when we when we come back. But uh, we are going to take a short break. We're going to let our broadcast partners at WFOV ninety two point one LPFM in Flint squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some. Uh, messages as well so don't touch that dial don't click that mouse we'll be back with more about american time bomb with josh melville right after this 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away From Kenneth. From Louis. Martelia Newman. From Marisha. Bertrand. <laughs> and the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We're talking to uh, an author of a new book called American Time Bomb, Attica, Sam Melville, and a Son's Search for Answers. His name is Joshua Melville, and he joins me by phone. Josh, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Well, that's okay. That's um, okay. Just before the break, you were talking about how, in the process of researching this story, um, a shift in in how bombers, politically political or otherwise, were perceived in this country. And you mentioned uh, Tim McVeigh, uh, the Oklahoma City bomber, and um, how they started being viewed as terrorists. How were the people that your dad, Sam Melville? Um, worked with and plotted with and carried out bombings on uh, on buildings in the 60s how were they not terrorists sure thanks that's a that's a great question um and and goes goes to the root of the question you asked me earlier about my personal journey what turning point you know did did i take and by researching my father you know one of the things i've come to realize is that uh you know one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter and it really depends on which side of the of the argument you're on, but or how it more, turns out, <laughs> right? But the, but there is but there is a, a more objective uh, differential between um, what we've come to know as terrorists in the modern age versus the type of uh, of bombers and activists that happened um, in the '60s. And um, the key differential is um, uh, the um, the intent to cause bodily and physical harm, and the choice of the target. So, my father was an engineer, and he made sure that the bombs were planted in such a way that only caused property damage. The bombs were all designed to go off at 2 o'clock in the morning or midnight, sometime when there was virtually nobody in the building. And they were chosen for their political significance. Um, a modern-day terrorist, uh, one's typically associated with, with Islamic extremism or even other, um, you know, Anglican-based American uh, homegrown domestic terrorists, is the opposite. The targets are chosen uh, out of convenience, like what can we get easily get to, and, and how soft much... Soft targets, uh, they call them. Soft targets, and how much human collateral can we uh, can we create in the process? How many people can we harm or kill to make our point? And so there, that's a pretty significant difference. One is an intent to cause physical harm, 
and a, and a target chosen that's soft or out of convenience versus one that's intended to make a political statement based on the target itself and the fact that there's no intent to cause physical harm. And that's an important difference. I, I, I think I try to outline in this book and one I hope, uh, I hope your listeners um, will take into consideration when judging my father, which, which you're apt to do if you read this book. Now, your dad left you and your mother to become basically part of a radical revolution bent movement um, and then was ultimately arrested and tried and convicted and, and was at Attica. Did you visit him in prison? Did you have any kind of a relationship with him? Did you get to know him at all? So I didn't know he was in prison. Um, I didn't know that he was part of a radical cell. I didn't learn any of these things until after he died. Mm. But I did have a relationship with him. Um, during the time he was underground, he was still occasionally visiting me on weekends. We, we still had weekends together. Of course, my mother knew nothing about what he was doing, uh, you know, because uh, they were separated. And then after he was arrested, um, he, he was writing me from the various prisons he was in. First, the Federal House of Detention, which he almost escaped from, and then Sing Sing, which he attempted to escape from, and then ultimately Attica, uh, where he spent the last year and a half of his life until the uh, uprising uh, that occurred there in September of 1971. And um, the letters would come to me, and the bottoms would be cut off. My mother would cut off the bottoms of the letters that had all the identifying information, you know, prisoner number, block, cell block, things like that, right. which are on the bottom of every prison letter. She would cut all those off and just hand me the letter and say, you got a letter from your father. And I would write him back. And so we had this correspondence. And when he wrote me the letters, and all the, and all the letters are published in their own book called Letters from Attica, uh, that's that was published um, after he died. All of his letters were taken and put into an anthology, and then some of the letters w that he wrote to me personally are reproduced in, in American Time Bomb in my book. And you can see by reading these letters that you know he's not writing to a child. These are not he's writing com writing about complex um, uh, things in our society about uh, you know pollution and being a vegetarian. At one point, I said to him, you know, in one letter, I said, Dad, can you just tell me, like, what are you doing to make a living these days? And he responded by saying, well, you know, I was part of a demolition crew, but we went out of business. And in the near future, I think I'll be making some license plates. <laughs> and, of course, there's no way a child could understand this, but he, he had to know that I would be reading these letters for years. And he had to know that I'd be reading these letters long after he was he was gone, and he knew he would not last in prison. He knew he would be targeted, and of course he was. And so, um, what you have is this kind of mail order parenting that was designed um, to be to be posthumous. That was designed, you know, to help me as a young adult make sense of the world years after he was gone. And to me, that's what makes the letters um, so significant and so poignant. And, and you believe that he was, in fact, targeted, that he wasn't just uh, caught up in a prison riot and died subsequent to that? No, it's, it's very clear when, that he was targeted. He was shot in the act of surrendering without a weapon in his hand at close range by a state trooper who 
quite probably knew him personally because they were the same age, grew up together in the same small town. And um, I, I managed to liberate an enormous amount of forensic evidence of the ballistics reports and things like that that contradict the state trooper's statement about how he came upon my father during the riot and, uh, and neutralized him. So when, when a state trooper lies about what's supposed to be a justifiable killing, of course, that's suspicious. And then when you examine the forensic evidence, you see you know, how he lied, the things he lied about. He lied about the distance that he was from the target. He lied about what type of weapon he used to make it difficult to do all that. And, uh, and so you start adding up all the lies, and you realize this is obviously a cover-up. He wasn't the only guard, by the way, who did that. There were many state troopers who lied about how they, how they killed inmates on that day. I, I don't go into the other stories, but there are other books that do. Well, that was and, uh, that was kind of my next question, Josh. Is is um, do you get the sense that that state trooper was acting on his own or under the direction of of someone else? And who do you suspect might have given orders to what sounds like several state troopers to take out certain people? Hello. Yeah. I'm sorry, I lost you for a second. Um, Hello? Yeah. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. So you're asking me if the, if I think the state trooper was asking was uh, operating on his own or under some type of direct order? Yeah, because it sounds like if there were several state troopers uh, that were targeting people, that maybe there was something else going on. Do you... Do you suspect anyone for you know instructing these state troopers to take out certain people so i don't think that that state troopers were informed take out this person take out this person but it's a it's a strange coincidence that uh, the people who are the so-called leaders of the uprising um uh that were all part of a single cell group um called c uh five company that uh, the, of the vast, the vast majority of the inmates who were killed were all part of that, um, of that cell block and were all leaders, you know, so-called leaders of the uprising. So it would be a hell of a coincidence. And in the book, I actually go through the math of it, and the odds are like 60,000 to 1 that these 12 people would be killed in a yard filled with 1,200 people. Um, so it's hard not to come to the conclusion that there was some targeting. In the case of my father... There's a little extra um, helping of of, um, of analysis that you can add on to that, and that is the governor at the time was Nelson Rockefeller, and he was the one who ordered the troopers to go in with were heavily armed against unarmed prisoners, and you know he knew who my father was because my father the last target my father bombed before he was arrested was his office Standard Oil in Rockefeller Center. And so Nelson Rockefeller, you know, when he saw the reports of who the leaders were, he certainly recognized my father's name and went, oh, this guy? <laughs> well, let's make sure this guy doesn't come out. I mean, I, I can't prove that conversation took place, but, you know, you can connect the dots. It's fairly obvious. And I do present the evidence in the book. It, it, this is just such a, uh, such a fascinating story. Um, you know, as we look back historically at the 60s, the bombings that took place 
seem to be characterized going forward as, as demonstrations. Was there something more to that? Was there a grander plan? And how was it stopped? Uh, wow, that's a... How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the FBI, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover... I don't want to say the FBI, because this was particularly J. Edgar Hoover's um, acumen. Um, there's a misconception that J. Edgar Hoover... Uh, hated the new left uh, more so than any other um, uh, political activist group. And that's not really true. J. Edgar Hoover hated the Communist Labor Party. He hated the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, he hated anything that he considered to be un-American. And he allocated enormous amounts of resources towards quashing anything that he didn't feel kind of fit his, you know, Norman Rockwell or 1950s uh, view of what America was supposed to be and how an American family was supposed to behave. Uh, in the case of the New Left, uh, the resources allocated were, were enormous. And um, in the early 60s, you might find a typical demonstration that had maybe, you know, a peppering of FBI informants who were, you know, disguised or uh, emulated the image of hippies to try to blend in. But certainly by the late 60s, by 68, 69, 70, um, the, the proportion of FBI and uh, what's known as the Red Squad, which is the Bureau of Criminal uh, Bureau of Special Services, which is kind of the, the secret cops that 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 are that that are plain clothes that that infiltrate activist groups. Between these two organizations, between local authorities, uh, Red Squads, and FBI, by the late '60s, the proportion of informants to actual activists was probably on the level of of, uh, of three to two, meaning that for every uh, three actual activists, uh, there were probably two informants in that crowd. And I don't think people at that time realized that they all knew that, yes, of course, you know, so-and-so could be an FBI informant, so-and-so could be, a, be an undercover cop. That paranoia always existed. Um, but I don't think people knew at the time the, the degree of the proportion that if you were sitting in a room with 10 activists, the odds are with that three or four of them were working uh, for law enforcement. And that can only have uh, been revealed, you know, decades and decades later when, uh, when documents were, uh, were, were um, deemed not, not secret anymore and could be obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. And uh, I began to realize when I got my father's files, so I requested the files for him, his, his co-conspirators, and the files for the, uh, for the gentleman who, uh, who was the uh, undercover agent accredited with uh, with turning him in. I realized that you know my father was surrounded <laughs> by undercover agents, <laughs> and he, even and even then, it took them months and months to uh, to finally capture him because he was completely off the grid. He had left his job. He was surviving on cash. He was uh, he he had no phone. He had no address. You know he was living with friends. He, he owned only what he could carry in a knapsack. And um, so it took them an enormous amount of time and effort. And eventually, of course, they did catch him and the other people in his cell. But it was, it was not easy. Did your dad leave a manifesto? No, he did not. Uh, other than his letters, which weren't designed as a manifesto, they were just letters to uh, me and his comrades and friends on the outside. But he didn't have an official manifesto. I think he would have considered, 
I think he would have considered a manifesto bourgeois. <laughs> 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 he didn't even, they didn't even have a name for their group. One of the reasons why he kind of resides in the files of so-called lost history is because unlike the Weathermen and the Black Panthers and the Yippies, these were all groups that had taken names. And when you give something a name, naturally you can focus more attention on it because it becomes that thing. But his group had no name because they thought having a name was bourgeois. They were real revolutionaries. They didn't care about headlines. Josh, when you went looking for answers, did you find the answers you were looking for, or did you find answers you didn't even know you were looking for? I found both, yes. I found the answers I was looking for. I found out if he was assassinated or if his, if his death was random. I found out why he, he, he turned a corner and became a radical. Um, uh, I found out why his position in history is, is, has been marginalized, uh, who was who actively trying to marginalize his role in history. And, and within that was something I didn't know I was going to find out, was who, who was doing that and why. You would think that it would have been law enforcement that would be trying to suppress uh, my father's um, achievements um, because why would you want to glorify uh, a man who was actively trying to take down uh, the government? But as it turned out, they were only a small part of that process. The people who were really um, marginalizing his place in history were other activists, other radicals who he was connected to who were... Um, uh, afraid of association with him because they were uh, afraid of uh, of revealing themselves. Some of these people were still underground or operating under different names. In other words, the more and people found out about your father, the more they might be exposed. That's correct. That's correct. And so it, one of the reasons it took so long is because um, other other things that were written about my father by other activists, other radicals, in those books, names were all changed. And so part of my detective work was reading those works, comparing them to FBI files and little fragments of information that I collected over the years and using that information to reverse engineer these other writings to figure out who was who and who did what and who was where. And from that, researching, and then the Internet helped when the age of the Internet came along and made things a lot easier. <laughs> the Internet makes it very, very difficult for people to hide especially if they're trying to uh, promote a product. And um, as, as, as many people are, one, you know, almost all of us you know, are involved in selling something, if we have a small business or whatever it is. And so that it made it possible for me to connect all the dots, find the real names. And once I had the real names, it was easier to go to the FBI and say, give me files on these people. The FBI does not assist you in this process. The Justice Department does not assist you in this process. So even though you have a right to these documents, you have to know what you're looking for, and you have to be very specific with your request, and you're only going to get what you specifically ask for. And so I would get a document from my father. That was the easy request, even though it took 10 years. But everything would be redacted. And so how do you unredact that? Well, you can take them to court, which costs an enormous amount of money, which I didn't have. I don't come from a, a wealthy family. And you would need, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars in legal fees to get these files unredacted. Um, so the less expensive way was to take pieces of information and, and carefully unredact using your own uh, facts 
and then go back and request that file. And then you get that file, which would be interesting. You'd get that person's name unredacted, and then everything else would be unredacted. And so event it would be redacted, I'm sorry. And eventually you have the same file two and three times requested different ways with different parts redacted. And from that you can assemble a complete picture. Well, this is the the search, the information is fascinating. Now, I know the, the easy answer is everybody, but who are you hoping will read this book, and what are you hoping yeah. people will get out of it? What made you want to well, share this story? The book's found an obvious audience with baby boomers who either lived through or participated in these events or had friends who they knew were underground. <clears throat> Obviously, the book has a nostalgic um, uh, reference for them, but also it gives them what I've and I've gotten a lot of emails from people who've read the book who said this book really opened up my eyes because I had a friend who was involved in this or I was involved in this, but I had no idea that this is what was going on in the periphery of the events that I was participating in. And so it has found an audience, uh, uh, you know, a, a baby boomer audience. But who I hope really reads this and the reason why I think the story is relevant now and why I chose to write it now after all these years um, was because we're now living through an analog of the 1960s, starting with the 2016 election, um, this country began to go on a course of, of, of division that is very, very similar, almost identical to what happened starting in, say, 1966-67 with the division of left and right. And, you know, you could argue that Trump is the new Nixon. Nixon was very much hated by the left, right, uh, liked by the right, and uh, the Vietnam War um, which was same thing was you know hated by the left and supported by the right, and you see uh, the what well, today would be the millennials back then would have been baby boomers, who are equal in population. There are actually more baby boomers alive today than there were. I'm um, sorry, there's more millennials alive today than there were baby boomers alive back in the 1960s, and so this enormous section of the population has an extremely strong voice, and their voice is quite clear. They are very much leaning towards the left, and um, they are using their voice and their power and the power of social media to stage a revolution. And so we're seeing something very, very similar. And one of the reasons I, I wrote this book was as a cautionary tale, because division is, is uh, diverse points of view and uh, healthy debate is important for our democracy, but when it starts moving towards violence, that's not good for anybody. That's not good for either side. And I don't think most people, most millennials and Gen Z, most younger people realize the price that could be paid for uh, some of the choices that their generation is making. So I wanted, I wanted people in that generation to understand that things can, as bad as they are, things can get worse. Things can get more violent. People could die. People have died in the riots that happened over the last couple of or protest, depending on your viewpoint, over the last year or so. And Gosh. eventually, you will have other Sam Melvilles. You will have other people, you know, targeting large institutions with bombs. And they might not be pacifist engineers like my father. They might be more of the Shea Rivera type, who don't care about who they kill, or the Timothy Mivet type, who don't care about who they kill. Josh, I hate to cut you off, but we're out of time. I always give guests an opportunity, and we just have about 20 seconds left, but to let people know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you sure. have a website? Yes, so it's pretty easy. It's AmericanTimeBomb.com, 
and you can find it all about me and various places to buy the book. You can also see some amazing reviews there by people who are involved in the movement who've read this book, like Hello Mark Rudd. Well, Josh, thank you so much. Every time I'm in Keep up the good work. Thank you. I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing.com. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. 
Chappelle, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. It was kind of a coincidence this past week. There was a uh, movie on bomb disposals in Germany, and, and then there was an item in the paper about this plane was flying along, and somehow a, a bomb came loose and fell. It didn't explode. It landed, and they had to send out an expert team to uh, disarm the bomb, and it's always a, an expert, courageous team of men who disarm these bombs, and I got to wondering what would happen if a team of non-experts uh, <laughs> ever tried to disarm one of these bombs, and I picture a small coastal city, very small coastal city with a beach, and uh, we see the police chief, he's sitting in his office, and he's expecting nothing more uh, than a phone call from one of his patrolmen on the beach, and I, I think it'd go something like this. Yeah. Hello. Uh, Lieutenant Stevenson here. Patrolman Hackmaster. Oh, hello, Willard. You're, uh, you're a little late reporting in, aren't you, Willard? You found a shell on the beach. <laughs> you, uh, you think that's unusual, do you, Willard, finding a shell on a beach? It's not that kind of shell. What's the matter, Willard? Doesn't it sound like the ocean when you hold it up to your ear? <laughs> oh, that, that kind of shell. Well, I'll tell you what, Willard. I'll send somebody out in the morning. And we... Oh, is that right? Gee, I was uh, kind of hoping that was your watch making that noise, Willard. I'm, uh, I'm going to give it to you straight, Willard. Uh, you, you got a live one there. <laughs> don't, Willard, don't hang up. Don't. That's an order, Willard. And, and stop that whining. <laughs> uh, now, you're perfectly safe, Willard. There's nothing to worry about as long as it's ticking. When it stops ticking, that's, that's something else again, Willard. Uh, now listen, Willard, get control of yourself. Now, you and I are going to disarm that thing. I, I've got the instruction manual. Well, no, I'm, I'm not coming down there, Willard. I... Well, I mean, I just can't leave the office any time I want to, Willard. No, don't bring it in here, Willard, no! Uh, 
Look, Willard, I'm taking just as big a chance as you are. I mean, this is my responsibility. I mean, if that thing goes off, it's me they're going to want to talk to, not you, you know. All right, now, Willard, uh, describe it to me. Uh, it sounds like some kind of torpedo, Willard. It must be one of ours. Are, are there any markings on it? It says made in Japan, huh? <laughs> now, it still could be one of ours, Willard. <laughs> is, is there a serial number or anything like that on it? X53L7. Let, let, let me look that up, Willard, just a minute. Oh, boy, you found a beauty there, Willard. <laughs> you, know, you know how powerful that baby is? Six city blocks, Willard. <laughs> what do you mean you'll call me back? There's a telephone booth seven blocks away. Willard! Now, stop that whining, Willard. Willard, I know this is dangerous, but if we can save one human life... That's the way you feel about it, huh? <laughs> well, Willard, get control of yourself now. But, uh, listen, Willard, uh, according to this, there's a... Uh, how long has that thing been ticking? About five, six minutes, huh? Uh-uh. No, nothing, Willard, nothing. No. Now, we're just going to have to work a little faster than I thought. But, uh, Willard, according to the manual here, uh, about six inches from the, the tail end of it, th there's a plate there. Yeah, and it's held on by four screws. Now, it says, uh, this is very important. This, this plate uh, should be removed with an LT-507 screwdriver <laughs> with a, a plastic handle and a demagnetized head. Yeah, you don't have one, huh? <laughs> I'll use a coin then, Willard. Okay, you got, you got it off, Willard? Okay. Well, that thing is sure is complicated in there, isn't it? I can't make heads or tails out of this. <laughs> no, don't worry, Willard. I'll get that, that thing fixed if it's the last... We'll, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it, Willard. <laughs> Listen, uh, Willard, uh, there's kind of a little... Uh, oh, hoochamajigger in there. Uh, a wheel of some kind. Uh, why, why don't you... Try turning the wheel, will it? Boy, I, I don't know. Turn it to the left, see what happens. Yeah, I, I can hear it now, Willard. It's ticking a lot faster, isn't it? Uh, you, better, you better turn it back, Willard. Okay, let's see. Uh, uh, listen, there are two wires here. Uh, it says here, under no conditions... Oh, somebody spilled coffee all over this thing. Well, one is kind of a... A grayish blue, and uh, the other one's kind of a bluish gray, Willard. <laughs> Willard, who are you talking to there? A little boy. Willard, get him out of there. If, if that thing goes off, we're... He says it's his. <laughs> it's a toy torpedo. Willard, let me talk to the kid, will you? He ran down to the beach with it. Willard, I think you better come into the office. We ought to have a little talk. 
You hung me up here for 10 minutes because the kid... What was that noise, Willie? The, the toy torpedo just sunk a fishing trawler, huh? Well, it's all right, Willard. It's out of our hands now. It's in the Coast Guards. Right. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Some call. 
Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 